What is going on? It's Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to chat with John of the band St. Agnes over Zoom video. John was born and raised in Reading in the UK and talks about how he got into music. He got a guitar at a very early age, realized he was left-handed, so he had to restring the guitar and played guitar for a few years. The guitar teacher he had ended up quitting. So once he got a new teacher, they wanted to teach him how to play more of classical guitar, which he wasn't into. So he stopped playing guitar for a number of years. Around 13, John picked the guitar back up, but he couldn't find a left-handed guitar, so he just taught himself how to play right-handed. He talks about some of the early bands he started and formed, how he was able to really learn how to record himself. We hear about him moving to London, joining some other bands prior to St. Agnes. He talks about meeting Kitty and then forming St. Agnes. We hear about their first few releases, how they got signed to Spine Farm Records, working with Sean Bevan on this new album, who we've had on the show early, early on, one of the first episodes we ever put out. Uh, Sean Bevan, who did all the Marilyn Manson records, the early Nine Inch Nails records, the Perfect Circle records. Uh, he's mixed and produced for a bunch of massive artists, but uh, we had him on with his wife for his project, 8mm. But Sean Bevan was the one who mixed the new St. Agnes record and produced it. So John talks about working with him, and John talks all about writing and recording this new album, Bloodsucker. You can watch the interview with John on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our channel. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it would be incredible if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with St. Agnes. Cool. Well, uh, I'm Adam, and this is about you and uh, your journey in music, and we'll talk about the album coming out. Sure. In, like two weeks or so. Less than yeah, two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. yeah, less than two weeks now. I think we're on a 10-day countdown. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, I'm sure. <laughs> it is, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So uh, first off, where were you born and raised, John? Uh, so I was born in a town called Reading, which is a totally like nondescript town on the south coast of England. Um, that big festival there? Yeah, there is a big, big <laughs> there, but it's, I mean, that's it, you know, and even that it doesn't really give the the town or city any kind of identity. It's just one of those places that you've got to be born somewhere and that's it. It has no real kind of identity to at all. Interesting. Even having that, uh, that festival there doesn't really, I mean, I guess it's maybe it's kind of similar to like Coachella Valley where it's like they have that festival yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. kind of small in the middle of the desert. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, Reading, Reading's like definitely not the desert, but it's if you have you seen, I guess, like uh, the English office, you know, like yes. the, it's that kind of place. It's not far from there. So it's like, oh, interesting. You, OK, you know, gray. Right. Uh -huh. um, and uh, but I was raised near Southampton, which is kind of in the middle of the south coast of, Eng of, of England. Um, did a lot of my formative years of gigging and stuff around that kind of area. Okay. Um, and then moved to London um, and that's where I met Kitty and that's where the band formed and, and we kind of took it from there. 
Okay. Very cool. Do you come from a musical family, artistic family, anything like that? I, I don't at all. I don't know where the kind of like musical obsession and kind of creative side particularly came from. I am um, actually there's there there was there's some creativity in the fact that growing up I was I was really into the idea of being creative anytime I could and I really liked drawing. Um mm-hmm. I was r- terrible at it really really bad i loved i loved doing it and um um my nan so my mum's mum she used to really encourage me with it and sit down and kind of help me do it um and i used to just kind of sometimes you know the weekend get up and be like i just really want to draw something today and i and having someone go cool let's do it let's get everything out and do it properly like what we're going to draw and really look at it and really think about what you're doing i think maybe just that kind of early encouragement with that kind of stuff did make me think that when you are being creative you there doesn't have to be a purpose to it other than just trying to do it really well for your own sake and the the value in it wasn't really about the final result it was really about like the intention and the process um and so there was no real music in my family at all. My parents liked music in the way that just normal people would turn the radio on and listen to whatever's like in the charts and stuff at the time. So, you know, my dad was a big soft eighties rock fan, like anything with a really reverby saxophone in was his, his thing, which just didn't excite me in the slightest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not, not my thing at all, but, for for some reason they bought me a acoustic guitar when i was about seven years old something like that a really small just a kid's toy guitar really just oh. one up a toy then one you could actually play notes on but it was really a toy immediately discovered that i was actually left-handed so it was all strung the wrong way around and and when oh, wow yeah and went went to um a local guitar teacher and learned how to play summertime blues by eddie cochran that was the very first thing i learned and i loved it i was really excited by it um kind of carried on developing a little bit over the next year two years something like that and then that guitar teacher she stopped teaching i think to have kids and i ended up with someone at my school who just wanted to do classical spanish style oh, right I, yeah like i totally dropped out i just i had no interest in it whatsoever it just wasn't what i wanted to do yeah um, well with the with the like when you figured out you're left-handed it was a it was acoustic guitar so you could just flip it over or that's that's, ex- that's exactly okay. it. but the classical guitarist it, it made me stop playing so i didn't play from the age of nine till maybe 13 and when i was 13 i really wanted to start playing again I had got into rock music i was into like metallica and and stuff like that and i really wanted to play and my older brother had a friend who had a whole box full of tapes that he would let me borrow. And I was listening to all this stuff and uh, the nearest guitar shop that I could get to on a bus, it didn't have any left-handed guitars, just right-handed guitars. So I was like, well, and and then eventually when they did get one in, it was five times the price. So I was like, well, I'll just learn right-handed. I'm just going to start again. And that's what I did. So I bought a, I, with my parents' help and some like Christmas birthday kind of like begging, you know, got a really cheap it was called a marlin sidewinder the guitar and i uh, got a right-handed guitar and and a guitar book and kind of taught myself how to play everything the other way around um oh and my so gosh that so that yeah. so now you play righty because of that 
yeah, I play right right handed, and I, I kind of blame that on never really actually getting that that skills. And I I feel like it held me back that I um I I'm not that great with either hand. I can play a little bit both ways, but I don't think I'm great either way. And it's the same with my writing. I can write with either hand, but neither of them are particularly legible. So yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, I I'm similar in the way that when I I throw left handed. And that's it because my parents didn't like, they didn't understand like left hand, like it just wasn't something that they even thought about. So it was like when I went up to like bat or hit, 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 Mm -hmm. it was like, you're, you know, they flip me. No, you're doing it the wrong way. You know what I mean? So now I swing right, but I can swing left, but I'm better. I would have been much better if I just stayed left because I don't even try anymore. Uh, But that's interesting. Like, because I've, I've interviewed other lefty guitar players that would, you know, do what you do as far as flip, flipping the strings, but even on like uh, a Stratocaster, just flip them over or yeah. try to learn how to play like a power chord, like upside down. Like uh, Chris yeah. Rowe from Atari's does that. He plays like upside down power chords. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. There's a band called Curb Dog who are from Ireland who did that. But my exposure to music, I think, because my parents weren't really into into guitar music at all, my exposure was pretty much kind of mainstream. Like it was whatever was in Kerrang! magazine. And I was always attracted to kind of the bigger bands, I think, rather than underground stuff at that time. And the bigger bands, generally people are doing stuff in a pretty conventional way. Sure. So I did, other than Jimi Hendrix, I didn't see anyone who was doing something like left-handed. Lefty. Yeah. And Jimi Hendrix seemed so kind of impossibly good. I thought that that's like, why, yeah. you know, that's fine. Jimi Hendrix is doing it because he's amazing. I'll stick yeah, we're like Paul McCartney. You're like, okay, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'll, I'll stick with just a right-handed guitar and go from there. And I was always much more into the idea of writing songs um, and expressing something kind of more internal than specifically trying to figure out flashy guitar parts. I was never one for kind of like doing the whole Van Halen thing. I, I right. you know. It was I just try- like a, like a, sorry to cut you off, but like, like a vehicle to write your own songs. hundred percent. As soon as I started learning, I started writing and had a, a, a little kind of tape player with a microphone in and would play ideas into that. And then got a Walkman that had a microphone in it and would play the tape player while playing along to that and figured out this kind of multi-track tape concoction of sounds that just was just it was basically a big ball of hiss but i could hear just enough of what i'd done to be like yeah those parts go together and i loved the fact that when you put two things together it became bigger than those two things and i just got kind of obsessed with the whole recording um and arranging thing and, I, and i've always been into the the recording side and that's you know in in saint agnes we do pretty much everything ourselves when it comes to production, recording and mixing. And a lot of wow. that comes from my sort of passion for doing that. It's something I've always wanted to do. So, I mean, aside from doing your own things, have you, or like, do you help other bands with that as well? Or is it just, you've just kind of done it for yourself? Yeah. So I've, I've mixed a couple of albums for a few other bands. Um, cool. Nothing that's kind of like nothing, nothing that's probably, hugely kind of translated um in terms of kind of like numbers and stuff but it's been really formative for me and and it's really interesting seeing stuff from the technical point of view purely Mm -hmm. the technical point of view because i've always written and recorded everything of my own pretty much 
And so wow. I'm wearing kind of two hats, but it was interesting going into just mixing someone's record where you just get sent the songs and you, yeah, get, you just get all the stems of the song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A list of notes saying we would like to do this with it, do that with it. And you, you hear it really differently and you can be, you realize how, how you, being external to it, you can make really quick, swift decisions where you're like, well, that bit just doesn't sound great. I'll just, I'll mute that part. And then when you send it back, say, here's the song I've taken out the guitar part that I didn't think really worked. If you want to add it in, let's talk about it. But sometimes people come back and be like, okay, cool. I like, I like what you've done there. But if that'd be my own music, I might've spent two weeks deliberating about that guitar part. That <laughs> right. Yeah. Muting me. it, listening to the car for a week, yeah. putting it back in. Like yeah, yeah. I can see how that could get really, because uh, you, you want it to be the best it can be, but I could see how it, you could almost like overproduce if it's your I, own absolutely. style. Absolutely. But that's why Kitty and I make such a good partnership is the fact that she's also quite technical, but her process is more instinctual, I'd say, than mine. I'm more mm. likely to be like, well, there's five different things we could do with this. So why don't we try all five and see? Whereas Kitty's like, no, I, I just know that I want it to go this way. I don't need to hear the other four. Let's just, let's just go with it. And then we'll mm. decide if it's shit afterwards but if we think it's good let's do it and move past it. and that's really healthy for me um mm -hmm. because it stops me over analyzing um but then it works both ways in the fact that i can say to Kitty, well we could do this this or this and give us some options to kind of like theoretically choose from even if we don't actually do them all she can be like oh i didn't think we could take this in that direction um that sounds exciting let's do it you know yeah so, it's a good combination where one of us is kind of more obsessive and technical and the other one's more kind of big picture focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Cause you can, instead of saying, Oh, we should do it this way. And then that's it. It's like, here's five options. What do you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dabbling with all these. What do you think? Oh, I think option two is the best. Let's run. With Absolutely. That. Yeah. Um, when it comes to like song, you said you were songwriting and then like recording yourself via mm -hmm. these you know, cassette to another boombox or whatever it may be. Like, at what did you start a band? Like, was that in high school or like when do you start kind of playing with other people or what was your real like first yeah, band I, you got into? I wanted to, I wanted to be in a band immediately. That was my goal straight away was to be the guitarist in a band. I didn't want to be a singer. I didn't want to be anything other than just I wanted to play guitar in a band. And um, I had a couple of friends at school who, didn't have quite the same maybe obsession about music that I did, but they were definitely kind of into it enough that I kind of convinced them to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, I had a friend who was a guitarist and another friend who wanted to be a singer, but basically he just wanted to be the like, man. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like he, just, he just wanted to be, I I'm still really good friends with him now and he would find it hilarious that I was, I'm still talking about him. Um, in that way, because he, he, uh, very, very enthusiastic and he could hold an, uh, a note, but his problem was he just couldn't count. So he was never coming in on time at oh. all. <laughs> and it was just a, it was, it was a car crash every single time he'd be like, come in with total confidence. And we'd be like, no, Tom, not, it's another four yet. You know, every time it was, it was like a joke. But yeah. We, we, we rehearsed really hard. We found a, my brother's, my older brother had a friend who, um, let's backtrack. My older brother was fully into electronic music and DJing and stuff like that. And 
it couldn't have been further from what I liked. You know, we had mm-hmm. we shared no, no common musical ground whatsoever. Um, but he had a friend who uh, was into rock music who was older than me. And, you know, when you're 14 at school, the difference between a 14-year-old and like a 17-year-old is pretty it's significant. Massive, right, yeah. You don't, you don't socialise at all. But I, I said to him, like, can you come and hang out with us kids and play drums just to see? And actually, we really got on and we ended up with him in the band. So there's a few of us from my year and this older kid playing drums. And we put on a little show at the school, like after after school, like we uh, sold some tickets, did it for charity and everything and did a bunch of covers, um, like Beatles songs and uh, Bon Jovi songs and Green Day and, you know, just a whole mixture of just stuff that we liked because we were 14 and had basically no real kind of exposure to the world of music that was out there. And we just picked these kind of major hits from. Right. Of course. Yeah. The big, big songs, big songs, but very little taste. And we didn't play them very well and everything, but I found the whole excitement of the build up to the show, the um, rehearsing and the really just trying to make something that was going to be memorable for the audience. And for me, I just found that really exciting. Um, And that hasn't really changed you know that that was the beginning of something that's become a lifelong obsession and whilst the other guys kind of fell by the wayside and when we got older they all went off to university I didn't want to go to university I was like I want to be in a band Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't remember how but I just heard that there was this like hardcore metal band looking for a bass player um and I auditioned for that got the job and I I auditioned for it like I was auditioning for Metallica like I was super prepared really thought about what I was going to wear like what I was going to say turned up and it was just the most low-key kind of like opening a beer I don't think we even really played you know it was super casual they were like are you available I was like yeah and they're like okay you're in (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you never know uh, right I mean that's that's the way that obviously showed that you are passionate and they probably even saw that right away you're like okay I'm, yeah. you know if you, you you probably walked in with more confidence than maybe someone else that had no kind of just winged it right i mean you're like okay i know the song i know what i'm gonna do yeah i've got the vibe going and then yeah. these people are probably like oh yeah like yeah are you available it, you know you could have went yeah, the other I, way right yeah i think that's pretty much what happened i think that they were used to kind of people who are pretty flaky and the fact that i was like on time knew the songs and was just really you know I was really keen I just wanted to do it I was like you know whatever you want to do I'm in let's go like and it was this real kind of like punky hardcore thing kind of like a bit like the band Willhaven and it was Mm -hmm. super underground and it was stuff I didn't really know much about it was a real kind of learning process for me one I was playing bass which I'd never really played outside of just messing about at home and the other one was I was playing a form of music that I wasn't totally familiar and comfortable with and it was a lot less melodic than I was used to before it's a lot more just like here's a quiet part and now we're going to play it 10 times louder and we're going to go fucking crazy and that was it that was the goal um and I really enjoyed it and we went and we did a UK tour played to probably about 15 people at each venue but I just thought it was but you're on the tour right I mean you're on the road that's huge yeah I saw something in it that I really liked while, but I also was like writing my own music at the time 
and had started to get into using a computer to record. So I'd moved beyond the two tape player thing, you know, and was now like multi-tracking on kind of like um, early kind of Pro Tools type stuff at home um, and had made music that was kind of like a much poppier version of Nine Inch Nails kind of approach, basically. Um, And the drummer in this hardcore band really liked what I was doing. And we ended up separating from the other guys and doing our own thing. Um, you know, we, we did them alongside each other. So I'd, I'd found this drummer that I really liked. Um, that was the one instrument I couldn't play. I could play bass, could play guitar. I was singing by that point and producing Mm -hmm. it. So I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, and that was really the beginning of me being a proper musician that was actually like, I have something I would like to hear that I'm not hearing in the world. Mm -hmm. And. I know how to make it or at least have a good idea of how to achieve some of those sounds. I need to get better at doing it. I'm not a very good singer. You know, my songwriting is okay, but it still needs refining. But at this point I was like, I could put something on and go, this doesn't sound a million miles away from the stuff that I like. Mm -hmm. I just, if, if I could now do this in a big studio and have someone mix it, who was really good, I think this would be actually good. Um, maybe I was a little deluded because listening back, I can kind of hear that there was maybe not as far on as it was, but I, I had some self-confidence there that, that allowed me to move it forward, um, mm-hmm. and end up getting a terrible record deal. Um, oh, really? so this is all before yeah. St. Agnes though, right? This is all before St. Agnes, but it was like, I got a really bad record deal that didn't really help, but I learned loads about the music industry and what not to do in that process there was very little money involved but there was just a lot of me kind of being too young and too kind of uh unsure of myself and letting control be handed over creative control be handed over to other people Mm -hmm. um and ending up with something that objectively i think was not as good as what i'd started out with and from a personal point of view, just I didn't like it and I didn't care about it and it hadn't scratched the creative itch at all. So suddenly I had an album in a shop that I just didn't care about at all. Like it just didn't feel like I'd had anything to do with it. Um, and so I ended that. And Oh, so after you put the album out, I mean, you get signed, you have an album in a store and yeah. uh, it just wasn't, yeah. yeah, what you wanted it to be. So you, didn't have the passion for it so you just can't you just ended the project at that point yeah just ended it just didn't want to do it anymore it just felt unfun the other guys in the band didn't really love what we were doing it just everything just felt like it had gone a bit wrong it felt really exciting before um and really it was just naivety that i thought that oh record companies they know what they're doing oh they'll put us with the producer the producer will make it sound 10 times better i didn't realize that that's not a given and the um a producer is only as good as your relationship is with them and if you work with a really good producer and you've got time to develop a relationship and they see where you're trying to take something and go i see where you're going with it but i'm going to help you take it even further that's a great production 
partnership if you've got a producer going well i see where you're going and i don't like it i think it should go over here you're just always it's always going to be compromised you know and that's basically right. what happened and the main lesson that i've learned that i've carried on into saint agnes now and has been a hugely important part of what kitty and i do is to just do everything ourselves as much as we possibly can not not just because we think we end up with a better result but i think that it's because for us creating music is all about scratching a really like um personal kind of itch of like i want to say something i have a sound in my head that i want to put out into the world and i want it to come as much from me as possible as soon as someone else is involved in that process it doesn't feel that personal and it doesn't satisfy on a deep level like i know other bands who they're totally happy to just write simple songs that they then go with the producer and they turn into something else and and they can really enjoy the magic of something that started off as this small idea become something much bigger through mm -hmm. someone else's work I, and I, I understand that but we just don't find that satisfying we need to kind of know that every note in there was us and every kind of like decision that was made was us um I, I've talked about this before and I always say that it's if you want to say I love you to someone it feels like why would you have someone else involved in the process of telling someone you love them you know you've got something personal to say there's no better way and person to say it than you in your voice in your way you know that's yeah i love that otherwise it's otherwise it's meaningless you know if you ask a corporate entity to come along and figure out how to tell someone you love them they might put on the greatest show to do it but it doesn't really mean anything you yeah know? it's not authentic it's not authentic that's the word i've been trying to figure out for the last 10 minutes of no no yeah no but it makes a lot of sense right i mean yeah. but when you good especially if you're young and if you don't know the industry I, i'm i guarantee a lot of people listening to this will be like oh wow so when if you get signed like i mean i grew up in an era of like if your band got signed like you just assume that that was you you were like making millions and you're gonna yeah. tour the world you know what i mean there's just like this this concept of what that looked like 10, 15, 20 years ago, that's just not it's at just all what it really is. Yeah. Because you only yeah. saw so much, especially with the internet now and everything else. But it was like, oh, so-and-so. And it was almost like a, a stigma if you signed to a major label. It was like, you brought up Green Day. It was I remember yeah. they signed to a major label and everyone's like, you guys suck now. And it's like, yeah. well, they put out two albums before they were touring and selling out everything. It made sense for them to sign to a major label. And, yeah. and but anyway like getting signed you're probably in the same position where it's like oh these people know probably know what they're doing because mm -hmm. they have experience so i'm gonna let them kind of take the the rain and then yeah. it doesn't turn out how you like it and you're like well i guess because i just gave over all the creative control elsewhere yeah. it wasn't what i intentionally started with exactly i think it's you you just need to think about why are you doing this if you're doing it to make money then maybe signing with a major label and trusting every single thing they say might be the best option if you're doing it for uh, artistic reasons then you sign with whoever lets you maintain your artistic direction mm -hmm. whether it's independent or a major label or doing something yourself it doesn't really matter the right. ultimate goal if you're trying to create art then then you need to look at who's going to allow me to just be as artistic as possible 
you know otherwise there was there's always going to be pressure to compromise what you're doing and exactly like you said with green day i i think that they were already writing radio friendly songs or songs that were always going to do well on the radio before they were on a major label anyway yeah so it wasn't like they didn't really need to change they just or they were kind of major label ready because that's what they liked and it's what they were already doing um, yeah they just had a bigger platform now because they have more money to put into the marketing of their band and everything else Exactly. It would have been really different if they as a band had had been like a really kind of scuzzy, aggressive, crazy, mad thrash punk band. And then they'd signed to a major label who had then gone, guys, can you write a radio song and we're going to put the producer who's going to help you to do it. That's that's not going to work. And that's that's where people come up against those kind of differences. So there are some people that just love more mainstream stuff and that's what they're going to be writing. And it makes it's perfect sense for them to go down that route and for right. other people who are doing it for a more personal reason um then it's not going to suit them but that being said we are signed to a major record label we're um which is awesome <laughs> yeah. it's great we're we're with spine farm universal um after having done one album and two eps on our own label mm-hmm. um we then signed with the major and We've done it specifically because the A&R guy who is at Spine Farm, his name is Dante Benuto. He is someone that has been in the music industry for a long time um, and who he's not jaded by it at all. He just retains an incredible enthusiasm for people that have a vision about what they want to do. So he's been involved with Metallica. He's involved with Ghost. You know, he's involved with really really big acts but you will see him every night of the week at underground shows checking out new bands he's all he's always interested in in what's going on and he met us right at the start of saint agnes before we'd really done anything he he saw us at a show and we began a conversation that lasted like six years before we signed with the label and it took us that long and him that long for us to go okay we're all on the same page now he respects, he respects that we know what we're doing and we respect that he would only ever make a suggestion or get involved in something because he really believes it's best for us. So he'll only introduce us to um, uh, an engineer or producer or something like that if he actually thought there's some value in the conversation that we're having. You know, mm-hmm. So we trust that he cares about our project and cares about us. And ultimately, he just said, you know, St. Agnes better than anyone else. Go and make a record, record it yourselves, produce it yourselves, do your thing. You know it better um, and just give us the record and we'll release it. It was very simple. So there was absolutely zero involvement in terms of being told, oh, OK, can you take some swear words out of this song because we want to put it on the radio or anything like that? It was just, OK, you've made an album. That's cool. What do you think the singles are? You know, they asked us, they weren't telling us this is going to be the single. This is what's going to happen. Total faith in what we wanted to do. So we've been very fortunate in signing with a major label who have that level of trust in what we're doing. Yeah, I was going to say they're they're like they're a major label, but they almost operate more like a grassroots, like indie label. I mean, the bands that they have are, I mean, you have like a Treyu and uh, 
anti-flag i think assigned to them and but yeah. not only that but like killing joe i mean just like the roster dragon forces like it's like these bands that i feel like they just kind of more like more or less say we want you because we like what you're doing we don't want you because we want to make you look or sound a certain way like I'm they're serious. signing bands because they dig what they're up to not because they look like they look at something and are like huh well this is decent, but I can make it better if I, you know, put yeah. this guy with them or, you know, it's, I, I think that's such a cool aspect of that record label. Yeah, definitely. They, if you, all of the bands on the label have a very strong identity. Um, either if, if they're established bands, then Spine Farm have taken them on kind of further on in their career. Or if they're a newer band, there's still a band that has a very strong identity in, in what they're doing. And that's something that they seem to respect. And we feel that, our identity is just, it is what it is. We can't, it's not contrived. It's just, this is what we like. We wouldn't want it to be any other way. And we were doing it this way before anyone came along, you know, to tell, to, to help us out. So we're just going to carry on doing our thing, the St. Agnes way. And, mm. and that's very artistically satisfying. Um, and hopefully, you know, once this record's released, we'll see, the benefit of signing with a bigger label that has a bigger distribution network. That's always been the, the problem in the past is that someone in uh, America wants to buy the record and we were selling it ourselves, you know, so the, the vinyl was 20 pounds plus postage plus import duty, you know? Oh yeah. It just adds up so fast, right? Someone was spending $50 to get a record, you know, which is just, and it takes three weeks to get there. So mm. with a bigger label, they will have stock in the States ready to go. And if someone wants to buy the record, like they'll be able to get their hands on it much easier. I'm not saying it's going to be in every single record shop in the country. I'm sure it won't be, um, but they will but to have will be the to distribution. I mean, yeah, that's the key, yeah. right? If exactly. they just, or if you put it out yourself and somebody ordered it off your website, you're like, okay, I got to figure out where they live. Got to go yeah. mail it out myself. And like you said, it's going to cost a ton of money just to ship it out. Whereas they have their own, yeah, they yeah. have their whole operation. Yeah, they, they know absolutely. And in Europe, it's been it's been a nightmare since Brexit. Like it's before Brexit, if someone in Germany bought a record, you could just post it, and it was no different than posting it to another UK town. But now, oh, I didn't know about this. Bre Brexit, you know, it means that us and the rest of Europe are totally separate. Right. And so when we post something. It takes way longer. The you have to fill out a lot more paperwork, and then when it arrives at the other end, no one knows the rules. And sometimes when it arrives at the other end, the recipient is then charged an import duty before they can pick it up from the post office. It just it becomes incredibly complicated, um, and it means it's really cost prohibitive to fans to buy stuff directly from us. So we realise that we can't carry on doing everything ourselves at this point. We need to have some kind of structure that's going to help us get our music out there because whilst we're a UK band, we tour all over Europe and we, you know, we need yeah, to, you want to sell your records to people that record. are close by that are seeing you. The simple as that, you know, we, people, we go and play a show. We want people after the show to be able to go and buy the record and it not be a massive hassle. Right. Yeah. That makes a whole lot that's of sense. It's very, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The easier it is for somebody to get your record, the better it is for everybody. Obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, so how do you then meet Kitty and how does this band start? 
so um there's uh i'll give you the kind of the full story like yeah let's hear it so um i had auditioned i i'd been in a band and that one that kind of failed i'd been in other bands doing my own thing but had done some touring had had some really cool experiences like going to asia and stuff but it never really felt like i had the band like the four people or five people that this is it like i want to spend all my time with these people and want to make music and feel really good about it It was never quite quite there and as a result of that the projects always kept failing um or just didn't they just fizzled out you know the, it takes a lot of determination and energy to get it through to that level so i thought i'm going to stop trying to be a band leader and i'm just going to join someone else's band and so I was looking around to find something and I found this band um, just on the internet that were looking for a guitarist, but I loved the sound of their influences and they sent me their very first track and I just thought it was incredible. Um, and they were, they didn't even have a name at that point. I went and auditioned for them um, and kind of got the job playing guitar. One thing after another happened and suddenly the band I was in actually got asked to go and do this one final tour so i had to be like i want to play guitar for you guys but i can't i've got to go and do this thing in the meantime kitty actually joined this band that i had just kind of snubbed playing keyboard um so when i came back i then went to see them play a show i'd been my my role that i had had for like three hours i had i'd been replaced in it you know um, which was fine <laughs> I, there was no bad feeling about it so i went i went to see them um and Kitty was playing um, and she was just playing keyboard and percussion in this six piece psychedelic rock band. But I thought she was just mesmerizing. I thought she was an incredible performer. She was like, you couldn't keep her eyes off her because she had this like level of intensity that totally surpassed what the music really should have been allowing. You know, musically it was quite close to the doors um, or um, Mazzy Star that kind of thing. And she was playing it with this kind of real intensity um, that hugely appealed to me. And so after the show, I spoke to her and we, we, we got chatting and realized that we shared some kind of um, musical taste and everything. And so I kind of convinced her to be like, well, let's, let's try and do something musical together. Like, let's see if we can do something. And at that time in London, the, prevailing musical environment was very much about psychedelia and like shoegaze music um like real drony kind of fuzzy walls of sound very buried vocals it was very kind of cool but in a way that i found a bit disconnected and, and i didn't find that exciting and uh, kitty felt the same that what we really wanted was some people that we could see from the look in their eyes, they really meant what they were saying. They really meant what they were playing. And the, in the kind of like the true kind of um, rock and roll tradition, like would really, perf really perform, you know, really be throw themselves at the song and be a bit more like um, bands like the who or Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, these kind of classic era bands. And um, so we, started St. Agnes with the intention of, well, let's just write a few songs and see what comes out. And I could produce it. So we, we made some things, 
got a band together of some people that we pretty much the first people that responded to adverts we we just took them on and we're like let's go do some shows and we told all the promoters that we were a psychedelic shoegaze band just so that we could get the shows get on the bill <laughs> yeah and uh, i mean we were we definitely had an element of that in our sound because that was kind of what was around at the time and you couldn't really avoid some of it seeping into what you're doing and it's not all bad at all it was just the way it was presented where everyone was just literally looking at their shoes and not performing and not being everyone looked like they didn't want to be there right right we 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 took the opposite approach and we just played like our lives depended on it and we interacted a lot and it none of it was forced we just did we just had this like really exciting energy about what we were doing and we loved it and we didn't really care how many people were watching we just knew that every time we play it felt really electric and the audience were like whoa you know i've just seen i've i'm in london and i've gone to a small show and there's been all these bands looking at their shoes and then we're there like jumping out into the audience and doing crazy stuff and playing guitar solos and all this you know just really going for it and the further we took it the more we enjoyed it we realized we want to be louder more more rocking like more riffs heavier and i had grown up playing a lot more metal but kitty hadn't so it was kind of interesting seeing through her eyes a real kind of freshness to like heavier music um everything to her was like exciting and new and it was exciting for me to see that um from her mm-hmm. um really just kind of capitalized on that kind of almost naive approach of let's just be the band that we wish we could go and see right now who you know we 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 love nine inch nails uh we love metallica uh we love pj harvey what are the things we like about these bands let's do that you know it was really quite straightforward in that in that approach um and we've really just been honing and developing that since and it took a couple of years for us to feel like oh, okay this is we actually need to treat with a bit more responsibility we can't just release any random song we want and chop and change our style on everything we're doing we kind of we started to know what saint agnes was and that actually maybe it had some sort of future we were being we were doing it so much for ourselves we didn't really care about what anyone thought or there was definitely no game plan about our career or anything it was just what can we do that we enjoy it really changed when andy our, our drummer now joined the band he was so good uh and such a massive step up from to um to what we had done before that his drumming plus kitty at that moment because of Andy's drumming on stage was so intense you know he's a real hard hitter very exciting really intense it meant that Kitty's performance she just overnight became wilder crazier and i loved watching what was happening it was like cool when i get home i'm going to write a song that's going to be perfect for the next show that's going to allow this to happen more i like i like what i'm seeing here how can i play a part in helping facilitate that and really we've just been doing that ever since what, what at what point or like what album was it when when uh this all started to kind of so take place the, the, or is it this new one well the first album is quite <clears throat> sonically welcome to silvertown we wrote yeah. that, we wrote that 
really not that long after Andy joined the band. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of where the shift happened. Yeah. So Andy joined the band and then we toured it a lot. We toured it for a year playing every single show we could. You know, we would play to five people or 500 people, supporting shows, headline shows, festivals. We just said yes to everything. We didn't worry about making money at all. We were just like, as long as we can put some fuel in the van, we'll just go. You know, it's just make up. And we went all around Europe, all through Italy, playing kind of like punk squats and just crazy times. And we learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about what we wanted to do. And we realized almost straight away that the music on that first album, we had written it really um, kind of still while we were a London band and being out in the rest of the world, we realized, no, the material isn't allowing us to perform in the way that we really want to perform. There's a few songs on there that's allowing it. Mm -hmm. We still love the other stuff that's on there, but we can't, it's not the tool that we need to allow us to express ourselves on stage the way we want to do it. So the big change happened when we did the next EP, which called The Family Strange. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think the first song that we did on there was a song called Brother. And that was a real moment where we were like, cool, I think we've got our formula is the wrong word, but like our basic mindset that we can enter into for when we're beginning a St. Agnes songwriting session and production and everything mm -hmm. uh, and yeah there there was i remember when we played that ep to our manager he was like fuck you guys <laughs> have changed a lot what you know what <laughs> what are we gonna do um everything that we've sold you on has changed and right right it's a lot different the now. network we've built up everyone's gonna be you're too heavy for it you're too you're too dark, you're too heavy, you're too... But we were like, well, this is just what we want to do. So if that's the case, we'll just have to build a new network. You know, that's just the way it's going to be. And that's exactly what we did. Um, and just started playing that. We were so we were so into it immediately. We so enjoyed what we were playing that I think anyone who was one of our audience members from the first album pretty much was just swept along with it because mm -hmm. it was so clear that actually we'd always been playing like this anyway. We just didn't have the material to allow us to do it. So from an audience member's point of view, the show wasn't that different. It was just that the disconnect between the material and the performance was less. The material and the performance now lived a lot more together. So it wasn't like we'd gone from being one band to another. It was just that we'd finally become the band that we always kind of were being anyway on stage. We just weren't on record. Right, right, okay. And then, then we did the Vampire EP, which was during lockdown. I was going to ask because you put out um, the uh, the uh, gosh, I just based on the name of the record, uh, the the Family Strange. You put that out in 2020, and that was before the pandemic. Yeah, that came out. We I remember being in our flat in London, packing up all of the European orders because um, this was still our own label at this point, and we knew we had to get to the post office the next morning because everything was closing the day after it was the day. It was the last, it was the last possible opportunity to post anything. Um, and we did the pack up like socially distance, you know, at that point we had no idea what what's happening, what's going on. So there's like me, Kitty and Andy all in masks opposite ends of the room, like with different piles of t-shirts and vinyl packing all this stuff up, wondering, you know, 
have we just you know killed each other by getting in the same room right. you know, we just didn't really know um and uh, yeah it was just a wild time but yeah we put that r- record out and then vampire was written during, during the pandemic okay yeah, yeah kitty and i wrote that together um we really just wanted to do something during lockdown when um it was easy to it would have been easy to just stop um and wait but we we lost our identity as musicians we felt like we were just suddenly two people that just watched tv you know that was it we'd be like we couldn't call ourselves musicians anymore because we weren't playing so we we set ourselves a goal of um recording a cover and making a video for it um one a day for a week we did that um and we called that the quarantine diaries and we put those out on youtube um Mm -hmm. and that really just got us like out of the the kind of fog that lockdown had put us into um and and in doing that process we were like oh i kind of like the way in doing it this quickly and in doing everything ourselves on a computer, because there was super limited how we could do it, not being mm-hmm. in a studio or anything. Right. It's like, oh, this is cool. I quite like how gnarly some of the sounds, you know, how kind of ratty and and uh, garagey some of the sounds we're getting are. So then when we did the Vampire EP, we were like, well, we'll do it properly. You know, we're still going to record the drums in a proper studio and everything, but we'll, we'll try and retain a lot of that approach in how we're going to actually record the rest of it. And that's what we did. And, and we've still retained that up until Bloodsuckers, the new record. Uh, oh, so that was similar, done similar to the, the Vampire EP? Yeah, um, probably even more DIY. So Vampire, Vampire, like the timing of it worked out that actually we had to release it really soon after recording it just because there was a window that we could, with our distributor, work something out totally boring business reasons for artistic <laughs> you know sure. these things these things play a part in it um, oh yeah of course and um and so we were less hands-on with the vampire than we would have liked to have been with we really loved our demos and then we went, went and recorded it we lost some of the kind of chaos that was in our demos and it got a little smartened up in the process that we didn't have time to go back and change and I'm very happy with how it turned out, but I also know there's certain opportunities that were missed that kind of like just kept, they were just in the back of our minds. So when we came to do Bloodsuckers, um, um, the label were like, you, you know your process, you do it the way you want to do it. So we went and recorded drums um, uh, on a, in a studio that's in the hull of a boat. Um, oh, wow. In, it's right next to um, the Millennium Dome in London, like the, the O2 venue. There's yeah, yeah. On, on the river through there, there's this red boat that's like a mobile lighthouse, basically. Um, it's been converted into a studio. And we went and did the drums there and we, we slept on the boat. Like it's me, Kitty, and Andy. Our bass player, Ben, had left by this point. So it's just the three of us, which kind of worked really well. We, we're like the three that were like tightest in the band. and we really had a vision about what we wanted to go and do. And so we just went and did all the drums there, a few little bits of guitar and bass, but knew that really what we wanted to do is get the drums, get it back to our home studio and then just spend time on it. 
And for Kitty and I, time isn't about making it perfect in a um, iron out every wrinkle. The time is about having the opportunity to make mistakes, to be, to explore ideas and sometimes to go, you know what, this sounds too perfect. I need to, we need to scrap some of this and go into it with a new fresh energy so that it can be more exciting and explosive because actually for some musicians, the first time they play it will be the most exciting and then it becomes more sanitized over time. For yeah. Us, for us, when we're recording guitars in particular, it's the other way around. The first time we play it, it tends to be fairly stock and it takes a little bit of time of playing it and finding the little moments that we can put interesting things in. And that takes, you know, that might take a few days of playing around with things and going, you know what, I can't find a way to make this unique or interesting. I'm, I need to rethink it, having that time to really develop it. And so that's what we did. You know, we, we took our time to really develop the sound of it and make it as abrasive as we could as possible without it becoming unlistenable. That was always our goal. Like, how can we make it so the guitars still have all the excitement of an electric guitar, but don't just sound like a Les Paul through a Marshall stack, you know? Mm-hmm. We've heard that, I've heard that. It sounds, that sounds amazing, but I've heard it a million times. Like, what can we do that's different? We were looking at every single aspect and being like, how can we have all the excitement that you get from those rock great rock things but do it in a different way um and uh it was the first time that we opened the doors to having someone else involved with us and it was a guy called sean bevan oh um, i know sean i know him i've had him on my uh, show before okay so Sean's, he's in a he's in a band with his wife eight millimeter eight millimeter yeah yeah, yeah. But he's yeah, also he, worked with you know manson and Trent yeah yeah <laughs> that that for us is huge like nine inch nails is our big kind of touchstone as a as a band of like kind of artistic the artistic goal of someone who's that brave in just doing something different and willing to kind of sabotage their own music enough to take it somewhere unconventional and um so so how did you know meet sean yeah how did you that how'd you guys link up we just we just approached him um we made a list of our manager was like if you could work with one person on the record who would it be and we made a very very short list and sean was at the top and so we just just reached out to him and you know we don't we didn't have like an insane budget to work on a whole album with him and then we actually didn't want to we were like we just want to work on one song and then use that as a kind of jumping off point for the rest of the album um because kitty there's like a big personal kind of side to the whole record which is that the tour before starting the album, Kitty's mum died uh, unexpectedly um, at a very young age. Um, it was totally out of the blue and incredibly traumatic for Kitty. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really hit, you know, it's a big blow for Kitty. And um, she actually passed away on the, f- it was the first day of a tour that we were doing. And, her kitty's family had said to her um you know you should go and do this tour you know don't you know what better place to try and heal than being with your best friends doing something you really love with music that's really cathartic rather than sitting at home 
feeling terrible, you know. So that's what she did. She embraced it. And we were really supportive of, you know, her decision, whichever way it was going to go. And she was like, no, I want to do the tour. And we went and did it. And it was an incredibly bonding experience. And um, we had some ideas of what we wanted to do with the album at that point, but it was still a way off. And we were, it felt a million miles away at that point, just because it was all about just getting to the next show Kitty right. doing the sound check. Is she going to make it onto stage? You know, like, is she going to make it to the end of the gig? Like, and trying to be really careful with her at the same time as respecting her decision to be like, I'm going to do this. And she was like, just magnificent. You know, the um, total commitment to just going for it and living in the moment and allowing the tears to come on stage if they happened. And, um, I think the audiences really sensed that something um, momentous was happening to her and they seemed to really respond. They felt like this incredible warmth in the, in the crowds. Um, and it's not, it was just after lockdown had ended. So a lot of people in the audience probably had lost family members or new people who had been affected. So I think that there was like a shared joy at, music returning to our lives at the same time as a real kind of grief for the loss of what had happened on a personal level for so many people. And that mixture of emotions kind of took us into the writing and recording of the album. Um, and that played a huge part in what we wanted to do. And Kitty uh, said to us early on, losing her mum really put into sharp contrast what was important in life and what was just a load of bullshit nonsense. And she was like, worrying about what people are going to like, worrying about what people are going to think about me, are just, they're bullshit. Making something I love, making something that has a reason to exist is what's important. So I'm going to write lyrics about how I feel right now and just totally explore the wound you know while it's fresh just go for it which she would be totally forgiven for not doing that you know the point right because a lot of people would like they either want to do that or they can't do that right yeah that's something that they won't be able to write about for years um, to come absolutely and there was no pressure from management or the label or anything to, to start the album no one was saying you need to go get this done but but kitty was very much like let's do it you know let's let's go for it i'm gonna just ride the wave of emotion and see what happens and because we were recording ourselves we weren't in a studio with a you know watching the clock with kitty having to sing five songs in a day or something it was just at home in our shared home studio being able to be like today kitty's like today i feel like i want to sing that song like I've written some words just now. I want to sing that song. I'm just going to go for it. Hand me a microphone. I'm going to go do it. With which all of that approach came about because of doing it with Sean Bevan. So the mm-hmm. very first song that we did is a song called Follow You, which is coming out with the album on the 21st. That's going to be like the focus track. And um, we'd written a song. We really loved it, but we were really daunted by the process of starting the recording process because we were coming from such an emotional place that it felt like to even get to the start line had been exhausting and had taken a lot out of us. And we, we 
for us, we had a rare moment of kind of self-doubt of like, should we be doing this in a more expensive way? Should we actually be having really fancy vocal sounds and using a very expensive microphone, which we had access to, you know, uh, we were very lucky a company had sent us this like beautiful equipment and everything, but we were like, this doesn't feel like our way of doing things. We're more a kind of garage kind of approach. And Sean heard our demo and was like, whatever you did on that, just do that. Just keep going in that <laughs> direction. And we, are, and we were like, well, you know, we're, we're really open to ideas. And he goes, well, Trent Reznor just used a handheld live microphone with the music up really loud in the control room and just went fucking crazy. And he was like, I think he should just do that. And that's what we did. And it, That's awesome. It was incredible. It just the fact that he loved the demo and just was like, just do the thing you're doing, but even more so it gave us permission to just be ourselves a hundred percent. And he sent back his mix and we were like, well, he's, he's taken this kind of aggression and the chaos of it and made it even more abrasive. And, you know, I knew that there were going to be some people be like, shit, maybe you've ruined a potentially like radio friendly song, but we loved it. We loved how brave it was. And it exactly embodied what Kitty had said, where it's like, make something we love, not something we think people are going to like. And we, as soon as we had that, we just ran with it for the rest of the album, that process. And just, you know, we would say to each other, what would Sean say we should do right now? That's what we're going (laughs) to do. And it worked really, really well. Um, And it meant that we got performances um, vocal performances that we would never have captured if we'd done it in a more conventional way where you feel like the red light fever, you know, now mm-hmm. you're recording your main vocal for your radio hit that's going to be pushed to all the, you know, it was just like, there's a microphone, you've just written the words, you're feeling the emotion 100% raw, whatever you record, let's just do it, let's hear it. And Kitty would just do it and, you know, you hear kind of, you can hear the microphone hitting the wall at the end of one of the songs when she just was overcome with emotion and just, you know, I turned around, I had headphones on thinking this take that she's singing sounds fucking incredible. Heard this loud bang, saw the microphone hit the wall and turned around and saw Kitty on the floor, like really distraught, um, emotionally destroyed and emotionally spent from singing the take. And I had a kind of moment of, where I was torn in two, really half of me felt so guilty that uh, she had given this much. And the other half was like, but I know that she's going to tomorrow listen to this take and go. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. That's it. it. Captures like forever. And that's exactly well, what happened. I was going to say it probably allowed for way more vulnerability on her part to be yeah. able to just go in and do whatever the hell she wanted to do and and not have like you said not be looking at the red light okay this is costing this much money i I got one chance and um when i interviewed sean bevan we we went to his house and Mm. just his setup like the way he he was working on something i don't know what it was at the time i mean this is like i don't know four four years ago or something but yeah Yeah. he just has his like mixer his board set up and his his things and it's just like in his like living room and the way he yeah. works is like su- super chill. And I'm not surprised that he was like, yeah, yeah. Reznor did it this way. Just do it like yeah. that. I mean, that's the best because those are the best takes. I would think I've even had it was interesting because I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier, when you're talking about the guitar parts, like mm. how a lot of people, 
you know, when they do a piece, like if they use, they want to use the first take because it, the more you do it, it becomes like stale in, in, yeah. in, in that way. But I feel mm-hmm. like when I've interviewed other artists that talk about that with their vocal, it's like, it, especially during like the quarantine, like they'll, they'll take a take of like with a, you know, a 58 sure mm-hmm. mic in the closet and sing something and then have it just record on their computer. And then they'll go to the studio and, use like a Neumann $10,000 mark or whatever. And then it's like, yeah. it, it just doesn't work as well because the emotion is in there. Cause I'm trying, they're trying to recreate this moment. And I feel yeah. like what you're saying with like Kitty's take, it's like that moment. Yeah. You felt bad because of what was happening, but it's also like, like you said, like that moment was captured and it would be yeah. impossible to replicate it a I, second I, time. That's it. That's, that's a hundred percent it. And it's, um, whether some things work best the first time you do it, sometimes you need to do them a thousand times before you get them right. And there's no real rule about it. You right. just, the thing that you let guide you is, is it making me feel the thing that I want this to make me feel? That's ultimately the the decision-making process. And that's what we did. And I think that for Kitty, there would have been no other way of recording this album other than the way we did it, because it was so reliant on, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night haven't done any i've been just in bed all day just feeling shit but right now i'm really up for like going and playing guitar on something is there is there something that needs some guitar and i'll be like i'd bring up a song be like cool i'm you know have a go at this one you know and mm-hmm. she would play some guitar on something and she plays very differently to me and uh even if we're playing the exact same part i can always tell which one's whose is whose quite easily um and she always brings something new to what what we're doing and so there's guitar the way we make stuff is very patchwork we don't there's no set uh thing about oh i play the guitar part here she's going to play the guitar part there and it's just whoever's got the guitar in their hands that time or is feeling the most in the mood or whoever's running with the most enthusiasm in that second um and it's the same with the bass we didn't have a bass player so kitty and i played bass on the record and i couldn't tell you who plays what where like (laughs) you know because some of the some of the songs developed once we recorded the drums we got back and we're like actually you know maybe this riff in the verses could be better you know maybe what we had as our basic idea could be better we've got the the drums so we've that's set in stone so we've got to play something to that but let's rewrite it and so i might have recorded the bass on the whole song but would say i can't think of anything new for this verse you have a go and Kitty would take the bass and play some stuff in the verse. And I'd be like, that's it. That's the thing. So we'd chop that into that part. So the song would be all me, except the verse, the first verse maybe would be Kitty. And I can't remember where those things happened. You know, there was many like it that to try and keep track of it. So if I listened to it isolated, I could probably figure it out because we play slightly different to each other. Kitty plays really hard and uh, I would probably be able to, figure it out but on the whole like when i listen back to the record in the whole mix i have no idea who's playing what <laughs> uh, yeah they, as i said sean bevan really helped guide us with that approach of just do your thing trust yourself don't don't think that there's a better way to do something other than what gets you the result that excites you and just go with that and make art you know as he kept saying you know like trent resonant they were in those records, those Nine Inch Nails records, you can hold them up now and go, these are an archetype of a certain genre. He goes, but at the time, they were 
you know, the label that they turned the first record into referred to the first Nine Inch Nails album as, as an abortion. You know, he was like, you know, you've ruined your career before it's begun because it sounds so bad. Right. Um, they just, people just weren't ready for it. That was the problem. And we were kind of, we're taking the same approach really, like um, of trying to be brave, trying to do something different, you know, use the rock form, everything we love about the rock format, but take it to somewhere new and embrace the fact that we were feeling so emotionally raw and so kind of like angry with the world and feeling the three of us like a deep love for each other. So there's a real kind of us against the world feel to the whole record that um, I, I just, I'm still like six months after finishing it, still really enjoy it when I listen to it, which is rare. Normally hate it by this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, John, for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to hear the record. Um, what do you remember? What song it was that you're talking about, where she dropped the mic? Yeah, so that song called "Animal," which actually we've released. Yeah, you've already released that one, okay? I was just yeah, curious. You, you, when you, if you listen to it, it's in the very last chorus. It's pretty much the last line of the song. You hear this big thump. It's in there still, so you can. Okay, I'll have to re-listen to it. But um, I have one more question. You've kind of been doing this throughout the entire interview which is amazing but uh i want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists i think uh my main piece of advice is just think about what it is that you want to achieve and why you're doing what you're doing um just be honest with yourself and if it's that you are someone that the most exciting thing in the world to you would be to work with loads of top flight artists and play guitar on those people's records then look at being a session player look at networking and take that approach. If you're someone that's like, I want to record myself like me, I want to write my own music. And you're doing that because there's something that you really want to say, then you need to pursue that and find the people who are going to allow you to pursue that and accept that people, you will come up against barriers of, you know, ultimately the industry is about making money that there will be people going you shouldn't do that there's a better way to go about it because they're more interested in making money so you need to know when to say no and just say it's more important to me that i make something i love than it is to make something that maybe other people might really love but i don't feel anything for so just be honest with yourself be honest with the people that you're involved with and accept the limitations that that might put on you um and run with it don't don't be uh, don't be scared. Be bold. You know, do do your thing. There's no one who knows how to do your style better than you know how to do it. You know, everyone has their unique voice. There's no point trying to copy someone else. Just look at your heroes and and think what they would have the approach they would have taken. Don't try and sound like them. You know, I think that's the the overarching message. If I could talk to my younger self, that would be it. <laughs> <laughs>